This morning in our Bible class, we're going through Matthew, and we got to Matthew chapter 4, where we're told that Jesus began preaching the gospel of the kingdom in all of the synagogues. And that's it. It's a powerful idea to think of Jesus spending his time going into synagogues and preaching, and specifically preaching the gospel. And we talked for just a moment about what, what the idea of the gospel of the kingdom was. It is the good news that God has become king. And when God is king, when you live in the reign of God, then the will of God, as it's done in heaven, you begin to see that will on earth. Like, what does it look like when God's will is done? You, you, can, you can turn on the news, you can look around you, and you can see what it looks like when God's will is not done. Uh, we see that, you know, pretty evidently. That, that, that's clear. You see it uh, right now when there's wars taking place in the world. That's not the will of God. Uh, that is what happens when human beings decide what they think is best and what human beings let, let anger and hatred and jealousy uh, rage in, in, within them and, and, it, and it leads over and it turns in to hatred and animosity. It turns into violence and it turns into death. Like, there are so many things that run rampant in our world, whether it is sexual sin, uh, that where you have lust unfettered that leads itself into action, it leads itself uh, into sexual assault, or to rape, or to unwanted pregnancies, or to uh, marriages that don't work because of infidelity and breaking of promises. Like, it doesn't take long to look at the world and see that there are many times and places where God's will is not done. But Jesus comes preaching the good news of the reign of God. That there's a different way of doing kingdom. That there's a different way of doing government. That there's a different way of, of, of living and being human. And Jesus is bringing that to the world. And through the Sermon on the Mount, we're getting a, a picture of what it looks like, this different way of being human, this different way of living. And when you do that, when disciples of Jesus do that, it's going to immediately create a contrast in the world around us. One of the most helpful parables in my mind for thinking about that contrast is the parable of the wheat and the tares. Because you look at the world and surely you can see the tares. You can see the weeds. You can see the thorns and the thistles. We just mentioned it. You turn on the news and you see that. But you can also look and you can see the wheat that is there. You can see the good growing up with the bad. You can see when, uh, when God's will is done. You can see when people are fed. You can see when, uh, the, when God is glorified. You can see when people's sins are forgiven and people obey the gospel and, and the church is, is what God calls the church to be. And there are so many beautiful pictures and images of that in the world as well. And so often we can, we can focus solely on one to the exclusion of the other that we end up with an inaccurate perception of, of reality around us. But Jesus is preaching the reign of God, and he's inviting us to live into it. Like, we get to be a part of that. And it's a, I mean, it's a beautiful idea. I love the, the picture from Isaiah 52, where you, you have this image of people who have been captives in Babylon, sitting in the dust and wearing chains. And someone comes running on the mountains, and it says, how beautiful are the feet of him who brings the gospel of, uh, of, of goodness, uh, who, who proclaims salvation, who declares that your God reigns. It's like, I can take off the shackles that have held me captive because God is now king, and that opens up the door to a new way of life. The gospel is preached by Jesus, 
I think you see glimpses of, of that good news through the teachings of Jesus, through the actions of Jesus. You certainly get the culmination of the gospel in the death and the resurrection of Jesus. You hear that message then proclaimed in various uh, church settings and in cities by Paul as you read through the letters of the gospels. You get to see the different ways and shapes that the proclamation of the gospel takes as Paul does that. But as you go through, there are certain fundamental realities that make what we call the gospel, very good news, that make the reign of God, that God is king, great news. And, and this lesson isn't going to be the most profound in the world. It's not going to be the most theologically uh, rich or deep. But I thought what we could do for a minute is just remind ourselves, what is the good news that God is in charge? Like, what is the good news that when, when God is king, what does that mean for me? What why, why when Jesus says, hey, if you follow me, it's going to require carrying a cross, why wouldn't I just say, no thanks? I, I mean, I, I appreciate crosses, but I don't really want that for me. You know, I'm going to go do my own thing. Like, why would we suffer for it? What is so good about it that it's worth not doing the things I want to do? Why does it matter? And so, uh, again, this isn't, none of these are overly profound, and I'm sure we know them, but I do think it's sometimes it's helpful to stop and remember them. And I would say one of the reasons that we should prioritize the good news that Jesus preaches above anything and everything else is because the first thing it does is it gives us victory over sin. And you say you look at the world around us, we see the effects of sin. And we see, you know, sometimes we can think of skin on, or sin on a small scale, but sin is the type of thing that, yeah, here and there it might look like there are small things and you might not always see right in front of you the, the devastating consequences of it. But sin is not something that just sits still and stays stagnant. Sin grows and spreads, and it often takes you captive in ways that you never thought that it would. In fact, that's just one of the, the, the common descriptions of sin in the Bible is that it's like a weight or a snare. It is something that, that keeps you captive, and then you end up in way more of it than you ever thought you would be. And you see that among individuals. You see that in communities. You see that in governments. You see that you know, among nations. Like that, Sin is what... War is what happens when sin is unchecked, and it starts with the individual. You see sin tear families apart when it starts with the individual, and it's not checked. You know, you see uh, something that starts as a little lust in the heart that turns into internet pornography, that turns into a husband neglecting his wife because he's watching other things. It turns into a wife's heart is broken. It turns into a husband then either acting on those, or the wife whose heart is broken ends up finding uh, comfort somewhere else. And all of a sudden, what started as oh, it's just lust. Lust doesn't hurt anyone. It can tear a family apart. It can leave children without parents. Like, sin leads to more sin when it's left unchecked. And that's just what it does. There's an expression in Romans 6 which talks about sin leading to more sin. You see it with David. David goes up on the rooftop and he sees Bathsheba. And, and lust is there conceived in his heart. And he could reject it, deny it, turn around, go to bed, and, you know, start a new day tomorrow and let's not go down this path. But no, sin leads to more sin. And he inquires about her. And he has her brought to him. And he has an affair with her. And then when that's not bad enough, she ends up being pregnant. And so he, he needs to hide and deceive uh, the, the nation. He needs to deceive those around him as to what took place. So he has Uriah come, and hopefully Uriah will sleep with his wife. And Uriah will spend the rest of his life. This is David's plan. 
This is, this is how he solves his problem. Hopefully Uriah will sleep with Bathsheba, his wife, and then when she's pregnant, he'll think that it's his, and he'll spend the rest of his life raising my child for me, and I'll pretend like I have nothing to do with it, and I can go on being king as if that's a great solution. Uh, but that doesn't work because Uriah is a man of honor who does not sleep with his wife while the rest of his men are out sleeping in tents on the battlefield, and so he refuses to enjoy the comforts of home. And so David, in order to solve his problem, says, okay, then I guess I'll just kill him. And so he ends up uh, sending Uriah with a message carrying his own letter of death that he's supposed to go into a battle and have himself, ex- have himself uh, killed in a heated battle while everyone else retreats and draws away from him. And it's like, David is supposed to be protecting his army. He's supposed to be protecting Israel. But no, because of lust that started on the rooftop, he's putting his army at jeopardy. He's putting a whole nation at jeopardy. He's having an honest and innocent man executed uh, by a foreign nation. Like he's doing all of these things just to cover his sin when he should have just gone to bed. And that's what sin does. Like sin has uh, an, an inevitability that if we don't, put it to rest, if we don't uh, move on from it, if we don't repent, then it will end up consuming and taking over. Sin often takes us places we never thought possible. And I think that's why in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is saying, yeah, you've heard that it was said don't murder. Obviously don't murder, but how does that happen? It happens when you begin to let anger fester inside of you and you don't uh, put an end to it. And then what does anger do? Anger devalues the very image of God and the person that you're angry at. And you turn against that person and now you no longer see them as a worthy human being. In fact, you start using your words to insult that person. You call them words like useless or idiot or empty head or raka. Those are all translations of that phrase. Or a fool. It's like someone God shouldn't have created because you don't deserve life. You are a worthless human. And we we use that type of language sometimes when we talk about people who are enemies. Well, that type of language is just another, it's like every one of these things, anger, hatred, uh, cruel speech, those are all barriers that, that keep us from becoming people who are murderers. But what ends up happening is one by one, we knock those down because we think, oh, that's not that big of a deal. There are a lot of people who actually have become murderers who never in a million years thought they were the type of person to do that. It's like prison isn't filled with people who like thought, yeah, I'm going to grow up to be a murderer. It's like most people think that's what other people, that's what bad people do. Well, sin left unchecked, guess what happens? You become a bad person, you know? Or, or maybe, uh, maybe the bigger problem is that you don't recognize the tendency that we all have to be bad people and the need that we all have of forgiveness. And so we, we deny realities about ourselves. And so we don't do what's necessary to solve the problems that they can lead to. And then we become people we never thought we would be. So many people have committed adultery who never thought they would. So many people have, have ended up ruining their lives and ruining the life, and they never thought they would. Why? Because that's what sin does. So what's the good news of the reign of God? It gives us victory over sin. It forgives us of the sins that we've committed. Even if you have done those, even if sin has been left unchecked and it has taken you further than you ever thought possible, there is still hope for you. 
No matter where you are on that, God has not given up on you. And through Jesus, he frees you from the burden of sin. He forgives the debt that sin incurs in your life and in your soul. He takes off the snare and, and, and takes off the weights that weigh you back. I love the language of uh, Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. It says to, to lay aside every weight and the sin that so easily encumbers us and run with endurance the race that is set before us. And I think that's a really important image there. It's the idea of taking off the weight before you run the race. And that's an important thing to remember about the glorious blessing of the gospel and the forgiveness of sin is that when you become a Christian, when you become a follower of Jesus, you don't spend your life trying to earn or attain that forgiveness of sin. Like, that's given to you at the get-go. That's given to you at the start. And what it does is it's like you have a huge race to run. Jesus is calling you to be a certain kind of person. And you read through the Sermon on the Mount, you're like, that's going to be a really hard thing to do. That's going to be a really hard race. But you know what he does right at the beginning? He takes off all of the weight and the chains and the things that make that race hard to run. And so, you know, if you think of, of your Christian life as my goal is to receive forgiveness of sin so that I can go to heaven when I die, you're actually, I think, perhaps missing the, the, the point. The point is you are already forgiven. That means the weight isn't holding you back anymore. You are now free to go run the race. You are free to be the person that, that God has called you to be, and sin isn't holding you back anymore. The gospel frees you up through the forgiveness of sins to be the type of person that Christ has called you to be. And when you become and when you're transformed into the image of his son, into that type of person, then the snares of sin are no longer going to be the things that ruin your life and the lives of those around you. But you can look and actually see the reign of God in someone's life. So it's like, it's a beautiful thing to have your sins forgiven at the start of your Christian walk. Because now you know, pick up 50 pounds and go for a run, it slows you down. When you take that off, now you have been freed up to be the person that Christ has called you to be. Secondly, another beautiful blessing of the gospel is not only does it give you victory over sin, it gives you victory over the division that has plagued our world so much. And, and when I say division, like there's a million different ways you can talk about division among people uh, and, and barriers between people, whether you're talking about race, whether you're talking about money, whether you're talking about nationality, uh, whether you're talking about uh, just like age, uh, gender, like these types of differences that we have. Uh, Bert, in his words this morning, talking about the Lord's Supper, talked about how like there are not many meals that you have with this diverse a group of people. It's like when you consider everyone's uh, interests, backgrounds, uh, the types of lives that people have lived, the education levels, uh, you know, like so many different things that make us all different, unique people. The table is the thing that we all come together and do with one another as family. And, and that's a picture of what the gospel does for us. When, when Paul takes the gospel and he goes from city to city, he preaches the gospel in Jerusalem, he preaches the gospel in Athens, he preaches the gospel in synagogues, he preaches the gospel at the marketplace, he does it in public, he does it in private, he does it at the Areopagus among the philosophers. Like, those are all vastly different settings for the preaching of the gospel. And yet what the gospel does is it takes those people from all of those different settings and different walks of life, and it unites them into one glorious family of God. So you might have experienced in your life um, exclusion. 
uh, whatever it may be, because of. Uh, pe people experience exclusion for a whole host of reasons. Um, the gospel is where you become a son or a daughter of God in the family of God, where you are welcomed with open arms. Now, that certainly puts a responsibility on the rest of your brothers and sisters to make sure that you understand that. Sometimes uh, we can make it to where you don't feel that inclusion, but the inclusion is there because of God. It's like you are welcome, and you are honored, and you are valued. Um, and it's our job to make people feel that way. But as you read throughout the Bible, that's one of the, the most important messages that Paul is bringing. Because it's a tough thing to get people who have historically had like cultural barriers placed between them so that they have nothing to do with one another. And he, through the gospel, tries to tear those barriers down to where they become one family. Like even Peter, you, were, you know, talking about the table, talking about dining with one another, even Peter struggled with this. In the, in the book of Galatians chapter 2, we run into this situation where Peter has, he, he has eaten with Gentiles. And that's a great thing. That's something he has never done in his life. But now because of the gospel, he's eating with Gentiles. But then some of those Christians from Jerusalem, where they don't do that, there aren't a, lot, there aren't a ton of Gentiles for them to eat with, uh, they make their way up to Antioch and they come and Peter's like, I don't want them to see me doing something that is culturally offensive to them. They would never eat with these people. So Peter then backs off, and he would only eat with the Jews. And when Paul sees that, Paul's reaction isn't, Peter, that is rude. You know, that's not, that's not good behavior at the dinner table. You're making these people feel excluded. No, Paul sees it as way more important of an issue than just social nicety. Paul says, Peter, you're no longer walking straight down, down the path of gospel truth. Like, you've actually you've changed what the gospel is because the gospel fundamentally is about taking these different groups and making them into one family. And by, by creating two tables where Jesus made one, you are harming the work of Christ and you are separating the, the table that Jesus died to establish. So don't do that anymore. And so Peter is rebuked harshly by Paul because Peter has forgot the fundamental truth that the gospel is about uniting people, breaking down barriers in victory over division. And so if you have felt as though you don't have family, through the gospel you have a family that is 2,000 years old and that will last into eternity. And you are welcomed with open arms into that family and loved as a part of that family. And number three, I'd say one of the benefits of the gospel is that the gospel gives you victory not only over sin— very important, uh, not only over division in this world, but also the gospel gives you victory over death itself. And that is an enemy that no matter what culture or nation or time period you live in, that's another thing that unites us. You know, you talk about things that unite people. One of them is that everyone has that that's before them. Everyone is facing that uh, either in the distant future or the near future, and you don't always know which. But that is something that Hebrews chapter 2 says that it holds us captive all of our lives. Like, death is something that Satan uses to hold us captive, and we live in fear of it. And it changes the way that we think about our future. It changes the way we think about our plans. It changes our bodies as we grow closer to it. In the pains that we suffer through and the diseases that we experience and the, thing, the, the loss 
loss of loved ones and the pain and the grief. Like that's a reality that everyone experiences. That's a reality in this world. And there's nothing, no matter how hard I work, no matter how much you try to exercise, no matter how much you eat, like no, no matter what sorcerer you go to, like there's nothing you can do to solve that problem. You might delay it here or there sometimes, but it's a problem that everyone faces. And it's a problem that is only overcome through the glory of the resurrection. In Jesus, who shed his blood on the cross to forgive you of your sins, who sent his disciples out into every nation to make disciples, to overcome the, 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 the problems of division, he is also the one who died and then three days later conquered death so that all those who are in him can do the same. Like Jesus is the only one powerful enough to take death on full force and to overcome it and to come out victorious on the other side. And he invites us into that as well. The resurrection is the culmination of the gospel message because it gives us eternal life through victory over death. Death, how did, how did Rome have its power? Because it was really good at death. Like, it, it would make people who stood in their way die. It would make other nations who rose up against it. Like, that's what war is. If I'm better at killing you than you are at me, then I win and I get power. It's like Rome made its power through the power of death. That's why the cross was such an effective tool. It demonstrated the power of death and the gruesomeness and the, the, how disgusting it was to everyone. They would often leave bodies on crosses so that people could see death. And death was a reminder, don't mess with them. People used death as a tool for their own power. Satan uses death as a tool for his own power. And when the power of death is stripped from Satan— he loses his ammunition against us when sin is, like the power of sin is stripped from him. And that's why Jesus was not ashamed to take on flesh and blood. Because in doing so, he was able to die. And through that, this is Hebrews 2, through his death, he was able to render powerless the one who has the power of death. That is the devil. Like Jesus, through his death, he took the ammunition of Satan away and he rendered Satan powerless because he stole sin and he stole death from Satan and he conquered those things. And through the gospel, we get to share in that great victory so that even though we will grow sick, even though our bodies will fail, and even as we face death, we as Christians know that that is not the end of our story. As a matter of fact, there's a great and glorious day coming when we will all be able to, with Jesus, overcome the grave and rise to life immortal. That's a blessing you get through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it gives you hope. And it gives you confidence. And it gives you trust. And it gives you uh, something to hold on to even as this life and all of the pains and difficulties that this life can muster and throw at us. It gives us something greater than that to cling to. And when I think about these different ways that the gospel truly is good news, there's nothing else like it. Nothing else can give you freedom from sin and victory over sin. Nothing else that I've ever seen can, can unite every nation into one family under the kingship of God. I love like, our foreign mission efforts because it's just another reminder of what a core fundamental aspect of the gospel is. That when you travel and you go to a place where they have a different history, different language, different background, they look different than you, they're, they're, like, every, their nationality is different, like, everything's different, and yet you're brothers and sisters because of the gospel. 
That's a powerful experience in the life of a Christian. When you see that, like, these are people I've never even known before, and we have, the only reason we have anything in common is Jesus. And yet we love each other because we're family because of Jesus. Like, that's a, the gospel does that. And then as you see people who face the grave, and they face their own mortality, and they're facing the end, and they're facing the inevitability of death, and it's grasped, they can do so with confidence knowing that even, even death, which you would think of as undefeated, it's like no one, no one wins that one. Well, Jesus did. Death is no longer undefeated because of Jesus. And because of that, he is the first fruits of a great harvest that we will all be able to share in. One of the pictures of baptism that I love uh, throughout the Bible is, uh, I say one of the pictures, several of the pictures of baptism that I love throughout the Bible, is how baptism is often pictured as doing each of these things for us. Like when we talk about victory over sin, we talk about victory over division in this world, and we talk about victory over death— Baptism is this picture, is this demonstration and actualization of these realities in the life of someone who gives their life to Jesus. So that when Peter in Acts chapter 2, he stands before people who have recognized their own sins and their own role in the crucifixion of the Messiah, and they cry out, men and brethren, what must we do? Peter says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. It's like that idea of you being forgiven of your sins is right there in the first proclamation uh, on Pentecost. And you have the idea there of the forgiveness of sins and the gift of the Holy Spirit, which is like the weight that has been holding you back is forgiven and taken away, and the Spirit is given to enable you to become the person that God has called you to be. It's like you have, you, you can run the race now. And that is the promise that is made to you and to your children and to all who are afar off, as many as the Lord our God will call. That's a promise that you have today as someone who has, the, uh, who has obeyed Jesus uh, in baptism. You have that forgiveness of sins and that enabling to be the person that God has called you to be. You also, you keep reading in the New Testament and you see the, the idea of victory over division is right there central to the teaching of baptism. Uh, look with me at Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3. And this is just one of, of several, but there's three really like prominent ones. One's in 1 Corinthians 12, uh, the other is in Colossians chapter 3 and Galatians chapter 3. You have these baptismal formulas, like things that the early church talked about when they talked about baptism. And they not only talk about baptism being something that forgives us of our sins, or, or baptism is, is the moment in which we receive the forgiveness of sins, but then baptism does something else as well. Galatians 3 verse 26 which says you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. That is family language. You know, when I talk about who, who am I a son of, well, that guy, he's here right now, Steve you know, and, and Karen. You know, that's, uh, my parents are here. But anyway, like, you, we can all point to like our parents and we say, like, well, I'm, I'm a son or a daughter of, of that person. That, we all have our own individual families, right? Well, what Paul is saying is that you are all, no matter what family you have come from, you're all sons of one father 
through faith in Christ Jesus. You're all sons of God. So you've all become one family. He's like, how have you become one family? Well, verse 27, For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. And that means, verse 28, that there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free man, and there is neither male nor female, or male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. The idea of no matter all, no matter where we have come from, whether you were Jew or Gentile, who otherwise would not have gotten along, they have become one. The idea of slave or free, people of vastly different so, you know, like, like positions and ranks in society, they become that one family. Even male and female, which is like some of the most fundamental differences that you can see in the human makeup, they become equal with one another's in Christ Jesus, all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. Uh, that language is actually important because the son in this society would be the one who is an heir. But in the church, you're an heir of the gift of God, whether you're a son or a daughter. You're an heir of the gift of God, whether you're slave or whether you're free. You know, if, in a household uh, where there was slavery, the son would have been treated quite differently than the slave. Well, in the kingdom of God, we are united as one. And, and so all of these are pictures of the division and the barriers that the world has placed on people in baptism. They dissolve into nothing, and you become one family with one another. And then the idea of, of, of the gospel giving us victory over death itself is pictured in baptism. When you remember what baptism actually is, it is a burial because of our death to sin and a resurrection out of the water to a new walk of life. You get to experience the resurrection with Jesus through baptism as, the, as a precursor to the ultimate resurrection that you'll experience on that great and glorious day. And so in baptism, we receive the forgiveness of sins and the freedom from sin that held us slaves. In baptism, we become one family with one another. And then in baptism, we reenact the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus so that we can experience the gospel of the resurrection as he did. And so that we can then live with him now and in the age to come through the resurrection. When we have experienced the first resurrection with Jesus in baptism, we get to experience the next resurrection with Jesus from death and from the grave itself. And so when you talk about why is it that we should be willing to suffer for this message? Because it's true. And because it gives you victory that nothing else can. It gives you victory over sin. It gives you victory over all of the division and hatred that this world can spew. And it gives you victory over death itself. And once you have victory over those things, the question is asked, what can man do to me? If God is for me, who can be against me? It's an important question. And it's one that we as Christians can remember and can take with us every day. We can have confidence no matter what enemy we face because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And if there's anyone here tonight who would like to become a child of God, a son of God through faith in Christ Jesus. You can have your sins washed away in baptism. You can clothe yourself in Christ. Become one family with people around the world who have made this same commitment. And you can have confidence in your victory over death in that final day. And if we can help you do that, please let it be known. And come sit on the front row while we stand and as we sing.